and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's read it one more time. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts for a moment of prayer. Oh, Father, we need you this morning. Lord, I am happy and privileged to say to you in the presence of whoever cares to listen, I'm going to serve you without turning back. Lord, we pray for that one who might be here that needs to find that kind of focus in their life. That you will help them to commit themselves wholeheartedly to serve you. Give us all the help we need by the power of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I was privileged to sing for a couple of years in the college choir at God's Bible School. And some of you, if you've been acquainted with the school, you know the name Garen Wolf. Garen Wolf was the uh, director of the music department for quite a number of years and uh, directed both the orchestra and the choir there from the college. And there was something about Brother Wolf, though he was just a short little man, um, he had a just a gigantic, dynamic personality. And Brother Wolf knew how to get people to sing. He, he could pull it out of you, and if you were not paying attention, he knew how to get you to pay attention. But one of those years at God's Bible School... Um, Brother Wolf had a number of physical problems and was forced to step aside for a time. And another gentleman who was very capable in a lot of ways, very well educated, knew what he was doing, knew about music, knew how to, how to direct uh, a, a choir, an orchestra, what have you, he, was, he had served for some time as Brother Wolf's uh, assistant, and he stepped into Brother Wolf's role. And though this man was educated enough, knew what he was doing, for whatever reason, he did not command the respect and the admiration of the students the way Brother Wolf did. And I admit to you now that as I look back on that time when I was about 18, 19 years old, I, I am embarrassed to say that I probably was one of the ones right along with, with the rest of the, uh, of the choir that um, would chat amongst ourselves as this dear poor gentleman tried to get us to learn our parts and and, and rehearse together and practice. That year, we did annually a, an oratorio. It was, part of our, it was part of being in the choir. You could also sign up for extra credit and, and take oratorio. And uh, I believe, if I remember right, that year we did portions of Handel's Messiah. And uh, 
I, quite frankly, was embarrassed when we came to present the performance at those that came, and mostly embarrassed because Brother Wolf came to hear the performance of his choir during the time that he had to be out and away. Um, it, it was embarrassing. And this dear gentleman that was taking Brother Wolf's place, he, he would grow so frustrated at times, and, and uh, he would say, come on now, can't we focus? Can't we focus? And he would try to get our attention and try to draw us in and, and to pay attention and listen, but for whatever reason, whether it was a difference in personality or, or what have you, he just did not command the respect and the admiration and as a result, it showed in our performance. We failed to focus. I believe that that's what this verse is about in 1 Peter 1.13. It is about focus. It begins with a therefore. <clears throat> Just a little hint for your Bible study. Uh, hopefully most of you know this. If you don't, uh, write this down. Anytime you see a therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself, what is it therefore? And uh, therefore is a word that points backwards at reasons or explanations that have already been stated. And then that word points ahead to action required or suggested. So here, Peter's therefore points back to the living hope that we have, that we talked about uh, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. talks about the lasting inheritance that we have in our born-again relation to God through Jesus Christ. It also talks about the loving protection that we have. Uh, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. One of the things that we have not taken time to discuss is our privileged perspective as New Testament believers, New Testament Christians. He talks about this in verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm, I, I can't take the time to dig into it there, but essentially what he says is that the prophets of the Old Testament wrote about this salvation. They earnestly inquired. They really wanted to know uh, what time uh, of, of human history and how God was going to bring about this salvation. And it says that God revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but us. And then he goes on to say that uh, the good news that was preached to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven are things into which angels long to look. That almost gives me chills to think about this. That, friends, the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ and the blessed assurance by the ministry of God's Holy Spirit that takes residence and dwells in our hearts is something that the Old Testament prophets earnestly desired to look into. They wanted to know about it, yet it was not for them. It was for us, and angels earnestly inquired to look into these things, but it's not for the angels either. It's for us. 
people, it's amazing to think about the wonderful privilege of salvation that we have. A present tense salvation to know that we have been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. And also that we have a final salvation that is reserved in heaven for us. That one day as we walk faithfully with Jesus, that will come to fruition. So all of that is background. Therefore, that's what he's looking back at. Then he looks ahead. Therefore. And the first thing he says is prepare for action. Prepare your minds for action. Now the literal meaning here is and it actually if you have a King James version you may remember this uh, the the King James version reading is gird up the loins of your mind gird up the loins of your mind now we don't necessarily talk like this now um, if you did hear somebody talking like this you would either know you were in church or you would think somebody had come to you from another century um, we don't talk like this because it isn't necessary for the most part. But in the day and age of the New Testament that Peter was writing to, and I hope you will forgive the homely little illustration, but this is the best way I know to get you there to help you understand what is being referred to. They, they did not wear trousers or pants like we do, uh, guys, and, and their, their uh, uh, garments were more like tunics, you know, that looked kind of like a lady's long dress. And so in that garb, their, their deportment, their, uh, their pace of walking, they would be leisurely, or if not leisurely, at least not in too much of a hurry. And occasionally, if the circumstances required it, they would gird up their loins. And this is exactly what they're talking about. They would have a belt around their, around their waist, and they, they would refer to it as a, as a girdle. It's not what you may think of when you think of a, of a girdle. They're talking about a belt. And uh, that long tunic that he's wearing, just like you see in the illustration, they, he would gather that up in front of him in, in two bunches and pull it through between his legs and wrap it around and tuck it in his belt so that he had freedom to move around, freedom of motion. And so that is the, that is the word picture that Peter is using when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare for action. Now, the mind is, we need to talk about or think about what he's talking about when he talks about the mind. Basically, when he refers to the mind, he's talking about our inner lives, our inner lives. And our inner lives are made up of, of numerous Parts and it depends on who you're talking to, the words you want to use. We have a we have emotions, we have a, a mentality. Um, you know, heart is involved there. Um, that which in our day that refers to the seat of the emotions. You know, in in the in the Bible, 
the word they used to refer to the seat of the emotions was either the bowels or the kidneys. That'd ruin a lot of, li- a lot of good love songs, wouldn't it? Um, but when he talks about the mind, gird up the loins of your mind, he's talking about our inner, our inner lives. Now, by nature, most all of us, our inner lives are characterized by carelessness, they are disorganized, and we tend to be indifferent. Now, just, just think about it with me. What I'm trying to say is most of us do not habitually think very deeply. Most of us tend to live very surface-level lives, and our thinking does not tend to penetrate much beyond the surface of our lives. I hope you will forgive this little illustration and poem, but drawn and the picture drawn and, and the poem written by one of my favorite uh, childhood poets, a guy named Shel Silverstein. And he wrote this, Mama said, I'd lose my head if it wasn't fastened on. Today, I guess it wasn't, because while playing with my cousin, it fell off and rolled away, and now it's gone. And I can't look for it because my eyes are in it, and I can't call to it because my mouth is on it. Couldn't hear me anyway because my ears are on it. Can't even think about it because my brain is in it. So I guess I'll sit down on this rock and rest for just a minute. A.W. Tozer said, a man who won't use his head doesn't deserve to keep it. And as I mentioned, I'll say one more time, most of us by nature, if we allow our, our lives and our minds to, to run just without us engaging on purpose, by nature we tend to be careless and disorganized and indifferent about our inner lives. We involve ourselves heavily with surface level thinking. Hardly ever dealing with moral issues, hardly ever dealing with issues that touch deeply our inner selves, our inner lives. But we think, we tend to think most often about our jobs, about what we're going to eat for our next meal. Maybe some of you about your favorite sports team or your favorite TV show or what have you. And the reality is, even the people with important jobs like surgeons and scientists and things like that, those jobs that require really excellent thinking and brain activity, they're only thinking to a degree that impacts their their daily work. They're not thinking deeply. Say, Pastor, what would be the purpose of girding up the loins of your mind? What would be the purpose of preparing your minds for action? And very simply put, the purpose would be no more loose living. No more loose living. Now, you can take that however the Holy Spirit happens to apply it to your own heart. There are some people to whom loose living means loose moral behavior, 
not being careful in their day-to-day actions. Friends, may I just kindly say that as people who claim to be Christians, born again, one of the first things that ought to depart from our lives and our lifestyles should be that kind of behavior. But very quickly following that ought to be our loose thinking. Allowing our minds just to go wherever they want to go. Friends, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He also said in the Corinthian letters that we know we, are, we don't deal with just what is physical, but rather we live and we work in a spiritual dimension. And because of that, we ought to learn to take every thought captive and bring them into submission to obedience to Jesus Christ. No more loose living. Back, if you take yourself back to the day that Peter was writing to when he said to them, gird up the loins of your mind, they knew the word picture. They knew exactly what he was referring to, and they knew about the guy that would, if he had called to, he would gather up the, the, the edges of his tunic and pull it up between his legs and tuck it in his belt. And if they saw someone in a tunic... <clears throat> They, they would be walking at a normal pace. But if they saw someone who had girded up their loins, they had gathered that up, they, they knew that that individual was ready for something. They may not know exactly what, but, but they knew they're, they're ready for something. This person is prepared. They are ready. They may be, it may be for work that they are ready for. They are about to engage in in labor that requires them to be able to move freely and quickly. It may be for travel that they have girded their loins. In other words, they're, they're on their way somewhere and they need to get there. Or it might be for battle. These would be three of the most common reasons that someone would gird up their loins. And friends, as Christians, our first order of business ought to be to eliminate the loose living in our lives. And that includes both the the moral factors, in other words, the things that we know and understand to, to be displeasing in God's sight. But that also ought to include our thinking and our minds. Gird up the loins of your mind. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35 and 36, we read this, Stay dressed for action. This is Jesus talking. And incidentally, the phrase there is the exact same phrase, gird up your loins. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. I grew up all my life, as did some of you, hearing about the second coming of Jesus. And we believed in it so much, and I still, I still believe in it. I, I, I'm not as 
dogmatic maybe as I used to be about the, the time frame. You know, there are, there are a variety of opinions about the time frame, about what's going to happen next and when. And I, I will just say about those things, we ought not to be dogmatic. Because I've heard all of those positions and every one of them seem to be able to support their ideas from Scripture. So I simply say, I, I think we're pretty safe when we stick with what Jesus told us. Jesus told the disciples, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has placed under his own control. And then he commissioned the disciples to go out. But what we do know for sure is that God's word tells us Jesus is coming back. When they were there on the Mount of Olives and, and Jesus was taken up into the clouds and the disciples standed, stood there, standed, stood there, gazing into heaven. I'm sure slack-jawed. And two men in white apparel said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. Friends, Jesus is coming back and Jesus told us to stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be prepared because we don't know what hour or what moment he may return. And friends, the reality is none of us know for certain whether we're going to leave this world by way of the grave or whether we're going to leave by way of the rapture. The purpose of girding up the loins of your mind, being prepared for action, is no more loose living, no more loose thinking, but be prepared. Now, the material that is involved, I told you a minute ago that, that what they would have called a girdle is what we would call a belt. And if you didn't have very much means, your belt could be simply just a, a, like a piece of leather uh, that you would just wrap, not, not maybe even like a, a strap of leather like we have, but a uh, maybe a piece of rawhide that you would just wrap and tie around yourself. You know, that's the way John the Baptist is described to us in the Gospels. But if you, if you were uh, of better means and you could afford it, you might have a, a girdle or a belt that was more like what we would call a sash made of, of woven fabrics of various kinds of material, and some of them could be very beautiful and maybe very expensive. If we look at Ephesians chapter 11, or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us the material that the Christians are to use as their girdle. Isaiah chapter 11, that we are to be girded about with righteousness and faithfulness. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, we are to wrap around ourselves the belt of truth. Friends, for the believer, it's not just any old thing that we try to gird ourselves with. You don't just take to yourself just any teaching that you hear. But you listen carefully and with a discriminating mind. You be like those, those Christians at Berea who were more noble-minded. It says that as they heard the apostles speak, they went home and examined their scriptures, their, their Bibles, to see if what the preacher said was really true we are to gird ourselves about with righteousness faithfulness and truth 
And after we have done so and we are prepared for action, we are to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded. I'm not sure this word communicates itself like it ought to in our context, in our modern day, because I tend to hear this sober-mindedness as almost a, you know, if you're a real Christian and you're a holy person, you know, you have to take everything very seriously and, you know, you can't really have a, a good time and enjoy life very much and, and you don't smile very often and you're very, you know, stiff and starch and proper and, you know, this is sober-minded. I, I don't believe that. <laughs> I'm, I'm thankful. I, I don't believe the Bible teaches us that. The Bible tells us the joy of the Lord is our strength. And there is joy in living. The, in, in 1 John, he says that he came bringing the message of the gospel so that our joy might be full. But that's another message. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul tells us this, Be not... Drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That doesn't sound somber and stiff and starchy, does it? Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. So we, we can get a better idea if we contrast this idea of of sober-minded versus drunk with wine. And the issue there is an issue of control. If you read that verse and use the grammar of the original language, it would read, be being filled with the Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And what the Apostle Paul, he's not saying that our experience of spirit baptism. He's not saying there's, there's no crisis. We, we believe in this moment of crisis where God comes, cleanses our hearts of inbred sin, and we are filled with the Spirit. But every believer is filled with the Spirit in one sense. The Bible teaches, and, and we have always believed, that at the moment of conversion, we are initially sanctified and God's spirit comes to dwell within us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You can't be a Christian without having God's spirit within you. But what he's talking about here is a different role or a different aspect that the Holy Spirit wants to take in each of our lives, and that is, a, is one of complete and total control of our lives. You look at the person who is drunk with wine, and you can clearly tell they are not in control. They're not in control of their emotions. They're not in control of their coordination. They're not in control of their conversation. There is something else. That's why we use this terminology of someone being under the influence. Quite a number of years ago, oh goodness, I think we only had, uh, 
Ethan and Scott. I think it was just the two boys and my wife and I, we were visiting some friends uh, that lived near Savannah, Georgia. And uh, while we were there visiting them, they took us off the coast there, the east coast, uh, to visit a little place called Tybee Island. And Tybee Island is a, is, is a beautiful little island, a beautiful place just off the coast, beautiful beach and all of that. And, um, but what I remember most about being there was not the beauty of the island, though I do remember some of that. What I remember most about being there was the poor drunk man that I saw trying to ride a bicycle through the parking lot. He had his little paper cup in his hand that he was trying not to lose, and he was trying to ride that bicycle, and he would fall off on one side and get back on and, and pedal a little bit more and then fall off on the other side. And I couldn't help but laugh to myself at one hand on the ridiculousness of that man, totally out of control of his body. And at the same time, still when I think about that, I think, my, isn't that sad and tragic that a person would allow themselves to get into such a condition? Be sober-minded. People as Christians, and there's... Boy, I'm, I, I don't have time. Um, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, the Bible tells us. Some of us know what it's like to be in services that are where everything is done properly and decently. And some of us have been in church services where you felt like people were a little bit insane. You know what I mean? Where in the name of the Holy Spirit, people have engaged in activities that maybe they hope to be intending to praise God and give Him glory. Um, now, friends, don't get me wrong. I've told you this before. I believe in exuberant worship. I believe in those times when God's presence is manifest and we worship and we praise Him and there's sometimes when it happens in quiet ways that it's just an awe-inspiring thing that you almost you want to be careful not to even move for fear of disturbing the presence of God's Spirit. But then there are other times when God comes and manifests Himself in an overwhelming and a powerful way and the saints are shouting their praises to God and that's biblical that's biblical Isaiah chapter 12 says cry out and shout thou inhabitants of Zion for great is the holy one of Israel in the midst of thee and it bothers me friends that so many of us in the church can get excited about so many things whether it's our favorite sports team or whatever but we can come to church and hear about God's goodness and God's mercy and His power, and we sit like bumps on a log. Friends, it's, it's okay. There are times when we ought to get excited. However, I'm not talking about a situation where we lose control 
That is not of God. That is not of God. There's more that could be said there, but we'll move on. Finally, the final instruction he gives as part of the therefore, and I, I, I failed to mention this in the beginning. When, Paul, when Peter says therefore, he gives three instructions. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and then finally, set your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, that's the completion of our salvation. That moment when we receive our glorified body and we, our salvation is, is done. It's complete in that moment. Set your hope fully. Now, we need to understand, friends, that this is not wishful thinking. This is not wishful thinking. In the Bible, whenever you read about hope, it never means wishful thinking. In fact, I am told, just to be up front, I don't know this based on my own personal study, but I am told that the word for wish does not occur in the Bible. It doesn't happen in the Bible. You either want something and you intend to have it and go after it, or you don't want it and you reject it. But this idea of hope as as wishful thinking is not in the Bible. What he's talking about here is a confident expectation based on sufficient reason. A confident expectation based on sufficient reason. In Psalm 130, there's a verse that says, My soul hopes in the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. I don't know if you know what it's like to, for whatever reason, have to be up all night. And you are waiting, struggling, waiting for the morning. And the watchman, that's what he's referring to, the watchman is hoping, is looking for the morning. Now, is he hoping for the morning in a wishful, kind of worried way? Oh, I hope the morning comes. No, he's hoping in confident expectation because he's seen the dawn come roughly once every 24 hours for all of his life. And friends, for all of us, we've seen the morning come roughly once every 24 hours all of our lives, and it has been doing so for centuries. And as the Lord tarries his coming, we'll continue to do so. And friends, that is exactly the kind of hope that we are called to as born-again Christians to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we get there? How do we get there? Friends, it is focus and determination, commitment, the kind of determination and commitment that comes from focus. This in closing, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, that day that Roosevelt said would live in infamy, the U.S. suddenly found itself plunged into a situation that it had tried to avoid being engaged in another world war. Things looked grim for the United States at that point. The better part of its naval force had been destroyed, and the Germans had honored their treaty with Japan and declared war against the U.S., which effectively forced our country into war on two fronts on opposite sides of the globe. By 1944, the Japanese realized that they'd picked a fight with the wrong enemy. Their resources were dwindling, and they grew desperate. 
In October of that year, they unveiled a frightening new weapon. Unable to complete with the air power of the United States, the Japanese started producing flimsy planes as quickly as they could. And these planes held two deadly secrets. The first was a bomb built into the nose of that plane, and the second was a pilot who had sworn a sacred oath to the emperor of Japan to fly the plane directly into battleships and aircraft carriers. We know them as the kamikaze pilots. The average kamikaze pilot was a university student, a young man probably between the ages of 17 and 20, 21, something like that. Often he was pursuing a vocation in the sciences. He prepared for his worthy destiny by writing farewell poems and letters to his loved ones. He would receive a sash with a thousand stitches in it, each one made by a different woman in their, uh, in their country. And then taking part in a final ceremony, he was told he'd be fighting for God who was the emperor of Japan. In effect, Japan deployed a massive force of pilot-guided explosive missiles. And the staggering thing about this story is that so many Japanese men were willing to face certain death. These poor, misguided souls were so willing to give themselves in sacrifice of their country and their emperor, that Japan couldn't build the planes fast enough. There were three men for every plane that they could build, three willing pilots. And these kamikaze planes and pilots became a formidable weapon in the force of the Japanese. By the end of the war, the kamikazes had flown some 3,800 suicide missions, taking the lives of more than 7,000 Allied sailors and other naval personnel. The kamikaze planes and pilots illustrate something very powerfully to you and I. I know that there's a negative, very negative connotation to that illustration, and I just, I want to acknowledge that and then ask you to flip that on its head. You see, when you find yourself facing an opponent who doesn't care if they live or die so long as they complete their mission, you have a real problem on your hands. There's not anything you can do with an opponent like that. They cannot be threatened. They cannot be intimidated. You cannot buy them off, and you cannot negotiate them with them. And friends, this is exactly the kind of focus and the kind of determined commitment that Jesus Christ calls each one of us to. He said, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Peter, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Peter was looking back on those words when he said, therefore. Now remember, they had a motivation that went beyond what the Japanese had. They were fighting for country and, and for national pride and for the love of their emperor and all of that. And I understand many of them were, were pressured into that position. 
Peter says, oh, therefore, look, we have, we have a living hope. We have a lasting inheritance. We have loving protection. We have a perspective of this salvation, this born-again living that the angels would love to know about and that the prophets earnestly inquired about. We know about it. Now, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, can I challenge you this morning, if you have not, to step across the line of full commitment. And if you have, maybe just evaluate for a minute with me as we stand together and close. So to look back and make sure, say, yeah, Pastor, I, I have crossed the line of full commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Let's bow our hearts for prayer. Father, thank you for the inspiration, the encouragement that comes from your word. Oh, Jesus, would you help us? It's so easy for us in this world that we live in to get distracted. Father, would you help us to fix our eyes upon you? And go forward in your direction, prepared for action, being sober-minded with our hope set fully on that grace that will be brought to us when our final salvation is complete. Lord, we pray for those that may not know, or maybe they could simply acknowledge, Pastor, I have not made that full commitment, but I need to. Lord, would you speak? Would you speak to their hearts? Would you help them? Would you help them in a special way? Lord, help them to understand, yes, there's a price to pay, but the, the, the price is well worth paying. Lord,